The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. and welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 78.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode. Man, I had such a fun time talking to Robert Clark Chan. Just so many interesting takes, so much excitement, so many memories we brought back to him. I loved hearing him be like, Inquest! And it just blew his mind. And so we have decided that he will come back on for an episode where we get into Inquest. Quest. We learned about the gaming scene of the 90s, so that will be very fun. Speaking of games, in the meantime, since that episode, we actually had our second annual Superhero Fantasy Draft, the Extreme Edition, and it was a very, very fun live Zoom event that you will be able to see on our YouTube in a week or two. We had a great group of guys who were just ready to have fun. The conversation in between the picks was fantastic. Somebody walked away the winner that totally surprised us, at least Michael and I. We were like, we did not see that coming, but definitely he was the one that everybody voted for. So uh, that's something that if you want to get in on it, uh, they are looking to kind of change the game a little bit next year and mix it up. Some suggestions from returning players who have participated both years so far. So look forward to that. But hey, we're talking about games. We're talking about winning prizes. And you know who else loved to win prizes? Wizard readers. So it's time that we check out Caps Kooky Contests. So let's kick things off here. Marvel Comics and Legends in Three Dimensions present the Splash Page dot 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 tingling art contest. Now what we have here is actually a piece that looks like it's a script for a comic book. It says Splash Page. And it's pandemonium! As we join the action, Spidey is leaping, twisting, and dodging across several rooftops as he's being shot at and various weapons are being thrown at him. Bola, spear, I don't know. The lunatics are out and they want that bounty. Every hunter from here to Hillsboro is out in force each one believing that he's got what it takes to take Spidey down. Some are dressed in street clothes, some in hunting outfits, and others still have fashioned cheesy-looking costumes for their big hunt in the city. Note to artists, do this however you like. It doesn't have to be rooftops. They could be chasing him down the street or through the park. We just want to give the readers the impression that because that bounty, things have changed for our friendly neighborhood bug. That, and as soon as he showed his pretty little, and then it just fades off. So, Eddie Dillweed knows that one of the biggest parts of any comic is the splash page, that big one-panel spread that kicks off the action. Each month, an artist translates the writer's words into a clean, action-packed, and attention-getting piece of art. Here's the deal. To the left is an excerpt from Spider-Scribe Todd DeZago's script for Sensational Spider-Man number 25, explaining what the issue splash page should look like. What you have to do is simple. Using Todd's script as a guide, take your favorite pencils, pens, and crayons, if you feel so inclined, and draw your own splash page for Sensational Spider-Man number 25. The artist with the most creative, original, and 
cool piece will win these fine prizes. Grand prize. One lucky webhead will win an original Spider-Man piece by Spider-Man artist Mike Waringo, a Spider-Man cold cast porcelain bust from Legends in Three Dimensions, and a sensational Spider-Man number 25 signed by Joe Bennett and Todd DeZago. First prize. 20 almost as lucky artist wannabes will get sensational Spider-Man number 25 signed by Joe Bennett and Todd DeZago. So this is interesting here because they don't give you the dimensions on this bust. And I know back in the day, these were pretty small, but this is just like, you know, part of his shoulders, his clavicles, and a bit of his chest just to show off the spider insignia. I want to know how big this is because I remember, you know, around 2007, 2008, like there were some gigantic Spider-Man busts, like especially this black costume one that I always wanted they were you know in various comic shops i would visit so i'm very curious to know but i probably never will anyway let's get into our friendly neighborhood legal so contest is open to anyone except employees of wizard press marvel comics legends in three dimensions their immediate families and chumleys who like venom as a good guy come on the guy kicks ass as a villain so they don't like it that people think that Venom is cool as the lethal protector. They want him to be just a deep, dark, nasty villain. I could see that. All right, let's see if the second joke in the legal text is back this issue. Prizes are awarded in the names of the contest winners or non-transferable. You know, Mike Waringo draws a pretty spiffy spidey. You agree? They're back, huh? They must have just been totally overworked and they just didn't have time to add them in last issue, but here we go! On to the next contest! Top Cow Productions presents The Dark Ennis Contest. In honor of writer Garth Ennis' return to the darkness, Top Cow has commissioned 11 covers for The Darkness Number 11 by 11 different artists, including the Hildebrand brothers, Wills Portacio, and Dale Keown, as well as regular artists from the Top Cow stable. As you can guess, each and every one of these covers is cool, but the folks at Top Cow want to know which one tickles your fancy most, and they also want to display their love of the democratic process. So, before I go on here, I just have to wonder, Rob, our Top Cow expert who we had on our Top Cow special episode, Rob, do you have all 11 of these covers? I, If anybody does, it's you. So I know we're going to see him on social media when we post this contest. All right, let's get going. Here's where you come in. Top Cow wants you to vote for the coolest Darkness Number 11 cover. Go to your local comic store, check the covers out. If you happen to choose the cover that gets the most votes, you could score these cool prizes. Grand prize? Okay, deep breath. One lucky Darkaholic will win the extremely limited Chromium cover version of The Darkness Number 11 signed by the Darkness art team of Mark Silvestri and Bot, an original sketch by Silvestri, one copy of each of the 11 different editions of The Darkness Number 11 signed by Silvestri and Bot, the Darkness Ace edition signed by Silvestri and Bot, the Darkness Preview signed by Silvestri and Bot, a Darkness poster, a limited edition motion card from The Darkness Witchblade Family Ties trading card set, and a whole box of The Darkness Witchblade Family ties trading cards michael j fox not included i guess all right uh first prize one almost as lucky jackie estacado file will win the darkness ace edition signed by silvestri and bot is it bat a box of the darkness witchblade family ties trading cards the limited chromia version of the darkness over 11 side by silvestri and bot and the darkness motion card from the darkness witchblade family ties trading card set tina yothers not included second prize five dark folks will 
will each get the Darkness Ace Edition signed by Sylvestria Bot, the Darkness Poster, an extremely limited Chromium version of the Darkness Number 11 signed by Sylvestria Bot. Oh, no chance to go for the third family ties joke. Oh well. And then you have one of the Darklings that the Darkness creates here. He is sticking a pistol out saying, Contest my hiney! Hand over the goods or something! All right, so let's check out here the ns and outs of the law. Get it? Instead of the ins and outs? No purchase necessary. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Top Cow Productions, their immediate families, and yahoos who think life without sex is supposed to be entertaining. <laughs> okay, next one here. No cash equivalent or substitute prices will be offered. What the heck kind of name is Bot? These one-name names like Cher and Madonna have gotta go. Oh, they got opinions. Well, let's see what we have next. Awesome Entertainment presents the More Supreme For Me Trivia Contest. Did you hear? Writer Alan Moore has signed on for another year on Awesome Entertainment's Supreme and Awesome wants you to join in the celebration by testing your supreme intelligence. What you do? Answer the following questions correctly and you could win the awesome prizes below. Grand prize? One supremacist, I don't know if that's appropriate, uh, will win an original Alan Moore script from Supreme. A page of original art by Supreme artist Chris Sprouse, a Supreme number 41 signed by Alan Moore, a copy of every awesome comic to date, and every variant cover ever produced, one of each of the awesome action figures ever made, a one-year subscription to all awesome titles, an exclusive members-only pass to Awesome's new website at awesomecomics.com, and an awesome t-shirt. First prize, 20 Supremarinos, that's a little better, will win a subscription to Supreme for an entire year and an exclusive pass to the members-only section of Awesome's website. Prizes Supreme! So here are the questions. I have read a handful of this run of Supreme, but I can't say I know everything about it. So in which issue did Supreme's adopted sister Suprema debut? Nope. Name three villains who are stuck in the hell of mirrors. Nope. Who is Supreme's archenemy? Mmm, Taco Bell? What city does Supreme currently call home? And what occupation does Supreme's alter ego have? Uh, I don't know any of these. Except that I'm pretty sure Supreme's alter ego was a comic book artist. I have a vague recollection of him being mild-mannered with glasses on or something. So, alright. Now let's check out the Lawsome. Get it? because it's an awesome sponsored contest. It's called Lawsome. Contests open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Awesome Entertainment, their immediate families, and any so-called comic fan who hasn't read Watchmen. Get your ass in gear and read it, stupid. <laughs> I think that is a rite of passage for anybody that says they love comics. All right, prizes are awarded in the name of the contest winners and are not transferable. Say, anybody notice the similarities between Supreme and Superman? Just asking. <laughs> All right, on to the last contest here. Megacon 96 presents the So You Wanna Go to Megacon contest. You look like you could use a vacation. How's about a trip to sunny Florida? The folks at Orlando Megacon Comic Convention want to send you there. It's pretty simple. Fill in the entry form, send it in. If we pick you, you go. If we don't, you get to sit home and watch Nick Frito, licensed teacher. Okay, Nick Frito, licensed teacher. Uh, I was called out because I mentioned it on a previous episode. Not 
not remembering that show at all. I was uh, informed that it was an early WB sitcom. Anyway, uh, getting on to the grand prize here, one mega lucky winner will receive two, that's right, you and a chum can go, round trip tickets to Orlando, hotel accommodations at the Orlando Marriott, and two tickets to Megacon 98, happening March 13th to 15th at the Orlando Expo Center. First prize, 10 not as well-traveled winners will receive the official Megacon 98 programmer poster autographed by all the major guests attending the convention. There you go. Somebody wanted to go to Megacon. I'd be curious to hear some of you who were down, you know, in the southeast if you made your way there. But here we go with our The Sky's the Legal. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Skyline Promotions, their immediate families, and Pete the Greek, who says Florida's the waiting room for the Grim Reaper. Pete the Greek? Isn't it Jimmy the Greek? Who is Pete the Greek? I don't know anything about that guy. Hey, Steven Sapelis, you're a resident Greek. You gotta tell us. <laughs> uh, last one here. Prizes are awarded in the names of the contest winners and are non-transferable. Another Pete-ism. Nice guys finish last. Wife and kids suffer. You guys gotta tell me, who is Pete the Greek? Is he like a radio personality in upstate New York? Is he just like a friend of theirs that they decided to put some of his quotes in the magazine that's wild all right well that does it for the contest now let's uh find out what i think about some of the hottest comics in robin's reading rainbow So as you'll recall in the issue, there was a long interview with the three founders of the Cliffhanger imprint at Wildstorm, and they were the hot new thing going on with their three titles, Danger Girl, Battle Chasers, and Crimson. Well, I didn't read them back in the day, but I certainly took a chance to read them over these last few weeks and wanted to give my thoughts as to uh, what was going on with these guys. A sidebar in the interview featured descriptions of each of the titles, so we're going to start out with Danger Girl by J. Scott Campbell. It's James Bond meets Indiana Jones. Danger Girl stars three non-superpowered women who embark on extraordinary spy-type missions. Besides an element of intrigue, look for the usual fun and campiness that Campbell brought to life in Gen 13, as well as the one thing that fans expect most from him. Hot babes! Quote, beyond that, all I'll say is that one of my goals of this series is to show that a car chase scene in a comic book can actually work. So, Danger Girl, alright? Obviously, I'm coming into this. Gen 13 was one of my favorite comics at the time. I was totally bummed when he left. And it was one of those opportunities to jump on board with the new J. Scott Campbell project. I remember seeing the ads in Wizard, but I just never picked it up. It became too much cheesecake for me. That's essentially what I saw. I was like, I don't know if there's a factor here for me that really works. I actually read it about a year ago. I started checking out some issues of Danger Girl, and then I started reading through the rest of the series. I know there's been a bunch of miniseries, but I'm talking about this initial run of 1998. And here is what stuck out to me. He talks about this car chase that he wants to accomplish, right? He does does an amazing job with it. It's fantastic. But the 
fun factor is like 100%. It's over the top. It's beyond even what Gen 13 was. Gen 13 has these goofy fun moments, but because it's Brandon Choi and Jim Lee's brainchild, right? It's always got to have this black ops, secret government, underground stuff, which is not what is appealing to me. In fact, that's what turns me off on so many Wildstorm projects. They all just feel like militaristic. They're not fun. Gen 13 broke the mold, but still dipped its toe in that quite often. It's again why I've always said I don't like the original miniseries. I like the ongoing series when J. Scott Campbell was much more involved in the storytelling. But back to Danger Girl. So the question for a fan of Gen 13 is, does it meet or exceed the fun factor, the adventure factor? And I think consistently that Danger Girl is a much better comic than Gen 13. And I'm saying that as a Gen 13 fan. Like, it has like a central focus of we have this main bad guy, you know, this revived Nazi group that we're gonna battle and they're up to no good. But like, you see the influences. It's obvious, right? Okay, so their leader who guides the group is just Sean Connery from Medicine Man. You know, it's not even the James Bond Sean Connery. So he's in there. And then later on, you have these two like ninja guys who fight each other who are obviously Storm Shadow and Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe. So they get their moment as well. And so all that's great. But when J. Scott Campbell is fully unleashed to do 100% what he wants, he hits the mark. I'm not saying that he had everything to do with it because it does have very strong dialogue as well. Andy Hartnell does a great job writing things. So I think that's excellent as well. But of course, what they mentioned, hot babes, right? That's what turned me off initially because it was too over the top. But as you read it, you really enjoy these characters. They're stereotypical. I don't want to say that they are offensively stereotypical. What they are is, okay, this type of adventurer from this country, right? Because who do you have? Well, you have our main girl who I think everybody would call Danger Girl, but that's not the case. Danger Girl is their organization. Abby Chase, who's very cool, and she's basically Lara Croft Tomb Raider. You know, she's kind of a treasure hunter. She's a female, younger Indiana Jones. You have Sydney Savage, who's this Australian gal with a whip and she's got the black cat suit like Emma Peel from Avengers, you know, the British one. And then at least initially you have Natalia Castle, who is like this blonde Russian bombshell, you know, who's super tough. And then the very fun character of Silicon Valerie, which is just, that's just a fun pun, right? You know, little cute teenage genius with freckles and red hair and all that. So it's a Betty or Veronica thing, a Ginger Marianne thing. You kind of have a, you know, general type that most guys have oh, okay I like brunettes I like blondes whatever it is uh, so for me I'm definitely a Sydney Savage guy so I'll just put it out there right there she definitely does it for me I think it's a very fun character overall she's her facial expressions that J. Scott Campbell draws on her she's always having the best time and she's just a little bit insane kind of a thrill seeker like it's really fun to see her work uh, in the book so overall Danger Girl like is a total hit for me I'm looking forward to checking out the latest miniseries as well as J. Scott Campbell has revisited that. But I think when he said I wanted to find out if I could do more than Gen 13, he was 100% right on and it showed that really he should have been doing more series. A little bit derivative, but I feel like with Andy Hartnell working together, they come up with some very, very fun things. The best of Gen 13 is just amplified, I feel like, in Danger Girl. The next one here though, Joe Matarera's Battle Chasers. Says here, set in a Dungeons and Dragons-like environment, 
Ultimate Battle Chaser stars four main characters that accidentally meet and team up for high adventure. There's Garrison, the greatest swordsman of the world, who's vowed never to use his sword again, Gully, a nine-year-old girl who will be the muscle of the group, a powerful unnamed wizard who lugs a huge spellbook on his back, and a half-machine, half-golem creature that's a combination of technology and magic. Quote, it'll be a very visual book, very cinematic, and almost like Indiana Jones in its actions, as Matarera. It'll be filled with adventure, insane villains, and dizzying action sequences. So that's two for two that they are saying it's going to be like Indiana Jones. You know where their influences are in this thing. Now, is Battle Chasers Indiana Jones? I did not find that to be the case at all. Battle Chasers definitely felt like its own animal, and I come in with a bias, right? Two of them, in fact. Number one, I don't like fantasy books. I don't like fantasy movies, all of that. It doesn't appeal to me. And two, Joe Matarera's art doesn't do it for me. You know, we have so many Joe Mad fans out there, and I guess I can say the closest I got was Age of Apocalypse, but I would not have anticipated a book from Joe Matarera at this time, like so many did. And so when I look at it now, I'm saying, what is he doing here that is going to be appealing to people? It is beautifully rendered. So obviously the art in there is fantastic. He picks cool poses for the characters. I think, you know, the pacing is generally very good panel to panel. So you can actually tell what's going on and enjoy it. Nothing feels rushed. Maybe that was the problem ultimately with Joe Mad. Took his time. Um, but what I'm always looking for are the characters, right? Am I going to connect to the characters? And I will say that I did not. Like, they were very generic. It felt like, he said in past interviews, playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons, where you are supposed to imbue it, you know, with some sense of humanity, or at least feel invested in the characters, because not all of them are human, right? But I personally didn't feel connected to any of the characters. Joe Mad, I believe, in a previous interview had said, oh, it's going to be like playing Dungeons and Dragons. Well, it is, and it's up to the player to create any sort of of gravitas, you know, like the DM is going to guide you through everything, but if you want to feel invested somehow, that's kind of up to you. And so Munir Sharif, who does the writing on this, does a decent job. Like, I will say, like, it didn't feel amateurish at all, even though I've never heard of Munir Sharif, but at the same time, I didn't feel like there were really specific quirks in the characters that stood out to me. Now, Garrison's whole thing about will he ever, you know, pick up his sword again, that is something you're waiting on, and they do wait till many issues in to actually have that happen. It's a lot of him moping. So if you like the slow build, it's going to be there. This gully girl, like, she's fine. Like, she's the one they're all trying to protect. But I didn't find her abnormally appealing in any way. You know, like, oh, this is a standout character. The wizard guy, uh, who they say here was unnamed, I think eventually he gets called Nolan, K-N-O-L-A-N, which was weird. And then there's Calibretto, the machine. Now, as often happens in stories like this, right, the inhuman character shows the most humanity, and I think they definitely played on that well with this Calibretto, uh, who is always wanting to protect Gully and be, you know, her savior in danger situations, but I didn't feel invested in this world. Now, the one character that was like the outlier that I feel like I know she ends up on the cover of Wizard eventually. I know that there's a lot of fans out there of this Red Monica, who I guess is his version of Red Sonia. Very busty. Like, I actually didn't get to read any of the stories that featured her at any length. She was kind of being teased in the issues that I was reading. And there's one just like brief page or two with her and her clan. Her bra was just 
just like out of control. Like I was just like, that is full to the brim. What is happening here? So that that kind of caught me off guard. So yeah, Battle Chasers is not like everybody's been waiting 20 years for this next issue. I just went to the comic book store. I saw it on there and I was like, well, I have a couple that I've been reading. Do I want to get one more? And I was like, I really don't. I don't care where the story is going. They haven't invested me personally, emotionally in their story. So if you love Joe Bad Art, there it is for you in all its glory. If you love fantasy, all the better, but definitely not at my alley. The last one here, right? This was kind of the dark horse, Umberto Ramos's Crimson. And the sidebar description here says, Set in New York City, Crimson revolves around the notion that before God created humans, he created beings without souls, vampires. One of the first was Lilith, an evil woman who began plotting the destruction of heaven and hell by turning humans into vampires. Enter Lilith's new adversary, Echimus, an old vampire who can see the future. He finds a human named Alex. Alex Elder, who holds the power to defeat Lilith, but only if he becomes a vampire himself. And of course, he's reluctant about that. Quote, Alex has to become a vampire and is angry about it, says Ramos. The story focuses on Alex and his feelings and relationship to Echimus. So, Crimson. So all the backstory, all the stuff set at the beginning of time, everything you have there talking about you know, heaven and hell, the creation of Earth, and then they worked in all their piece of the mythology about these creatures without souls that became vampires. I don't know, maybe that's in some religious text I'm just not familiar with. But I just thought it was really fascinating how they built all that up. And then immediately when they get to the modern day and you meet this Alex Elder kid, I was just like, oh, gross. Like, this is terrible. This is the worst 90s whiny teenager speak. Like, it was just so bad. And I don't know, Brian Augustin, I'm not familiar with his work. I think he worked with Mark Wade on Impulse. Is that right? Like, he co-wrote? I, I mean, I know he did, like, JLA Year One. He did a lot of stuff with Mark Wade. So I immediately did not like this character at all. And who he's supposed to be the protagonist. I didn't feel like he was any type of, you know, person to be invested in that could be a story they could start on the bottom and then they're going to grow into you know a hero or someone that you care about but it just continued on the dialogue. I've said it before. I need good, solid dialogue, and it was not there. Because when he eventually meets up with other vampires, oh my goodness, like, the accents on them, the way they're written, is, like, beyond Chris Claremont bad. Like, this is such terrible. Like, there's this one gal who I think is supposed to be, like, Jamaican or something. She's this, you know, leader of this vampire clique, I guess you would call it. They're basically just, like, the Lost Boys movie. Like, they just go around murdering people, eating them, and that's, like, most of the art is just, like, blood everywhere, and it's cartoony, but it's still gross-looking. It's just, like, blood just dripping off people, limbs severed, meat flying. Like, I was just like, oh, come on. And then when you get to a, this character who is kind of like a cool older brother to Alex. He's kind of playing not his mentor, but his guide through the world of being a vampire. Like the one clever thing that I thought was cool was they say, well, you're a vampire now. You have to drink blood. Alex doesn't want to do it. He keeps trying to eat regular food and throwing up. And then Joe says to him, hey, no, you can still eat a burger. And then he eats it. And he's like, eh, it tastes like nothing. It's gross. He's like, no, you have to remember 
every burger you've ever eaten. You get to just remember the sense memory of the excitement of the salivating. You did all, all those things and then it becomes the most delicious thing you've ever eaten. Humans have to deal with they're actually tasting. You're tasting every burger ever. And I was like, that's a very cool concept. I like that a lot. But other than that, like it's this kid, kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, because this Echimus guy comes out. He's just this old guy, you know, with gray, white hair and whatever. And he's just like, hey, I'm going to train you how to be a vampire. He doesn't want to be a vampire. So he's snotty and talking back to him. And he's like, oh, why did I choose this life? Blah, blah, blah. You know, like stuff like that. So it's, I don't know. Here's what I have to say, because Umberto Ramos is the one who consistently produced a comic book, you know, on a regular basis, unlike J. Scott Campbell and especially Joe Mad, right? That was the criticism. He was the guy who was getting it out onto the stands. So you got to give it up to him for that. But I think he just chose the wrong writing partner. I think Brian Augustin is not the right guy for this story. He needed somebody maybe a little bit younger, a little bit hipper, a little bit, you know, more edgy. And like I said, the book is plenty violent and edgy, but I just think like Brian Augustin maybe harkens back to... He reveres a different type of storytelling, an older type of comic storytelling that just doesn't fit at all with what's going on in this story with the attitude that the art seems to present. So it's kind of the same way I felt like when Alberto Ramos very briefly was drawing DV8. Like, it's just like, no, the, the storytelling's terrible. The art was okay, but the storytelling in it is just not enjoyable, not something I can get behind. So that's where I'm at with Cliffhanger. Danger Girl is a winner. Battle Chasers, I'm Luke Orbot. It's just okay. Crimson? not good. So I would be very interested to hear what all of you think about the first launch titles from Cliffhanger. Am I totally wrong? What am I missing? I'm sure I will hear about it. Hey geeks, it's time to take a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Manscaped. If you haven't heard already, it's Smooth Sack Summer. When you're playing in the summer sun, make sure you're manscaped from pubes to bum. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) This is the summer to keep your balls cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. The leaders in below the waist grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving our pants partners everything they need to stay fresh, dive headfirst into smooth sack summer by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code wizard20, which my cousin just told me he ordered as well. Oh yeah, I mean, this is the season, man, like they're saying. And you know who's the king of summertime manscaping, Michael? It's Namor, (laughs) the Submariner. His Atlantean Speedo leaves very little to the imagination and dude always looks smooth when he's battling the villains of the deep blue sea imperious rex namor obviously hooked himself up with manscaped performance package 4.0 and it's time you do the same it has everything you need to prepare that summer bod manscaped has built the ultimate grooming bundle for your summer grooming Their Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade, 
to reduce grooming accidents thanks to its advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 has a 7,000 RPM motor, a new multifunction on-off switch to engage travel lock. That's kind of cool. And gives you the ability to turn the 4,000 Kelvin LED spotlight on and off when needed for more precise shaves. I'll just tell you, Michael, like I busted out my equipment for the summertime. You know, it's getting hotter. I got to have less hair on the body, you know, just trying to keep it uh, nice and cool around these parts. I'm excited. Both of those pieces of equipment are just so easy to use. That's the best part. I don't have to like prep anything. I'm just like, nope, it's ready to go. It's a smooth experience all the way around. I got to say also the battery lasts a long time. Like if you charge this, it will last you several uses before you need to recharge it as well, which I find very interesting. Did I mention this trimmer is waterproof too? Mm -hmm. Beach, lake, or shower? this razor will devour even the strongest pubes. And once you have the perfect haircut, you can use Manscaped's liquid formulations to keep that freshness, even at the hottest summer barbecues. Most importantly, use the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant to stay cool in the heat with a soothing aloe vera formula. It's the best in the business for below-the-waist freshness, and this clear-drying formula will keep looking good while smelling good. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Performance Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers, which I wear quite often, they're very very comfortable and the shed travel bag wearing sandals with some nasty toenails during the summer months take a look at the shears 2.0 a luxury nail grooming kit this kit includes stainless steel nail cutters tweezers and grooming scissors so with the performance package 4.0 your balls will be ready to impress but make sure you cover the rest with the shears 2.0 so how do you go from imperious rexy to imperious sexy go to manscaped.com now get 20 percent off plus free shipping with the code wizards20 at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off plus free shipping with the code wizards20 at manscaped.com it's smooth sack summer geeks get on board or get left behind Let's find out what Wizard thought of the current crop of comics in The Skinny. So the first book they're looking at this month is Heroes for Hire. Says Marvel's new team takes it too easy. This is being written by John Ostrander, Pascal Ferry, and Jaime Mendoza are providing the art there. What you need to know, Iron Fist has restarted the professional superhero agency Heroes for Hire. Joining him are his former partner Power Man, Black Knight, the new White Tiger, Ant-Man, and a rotating supporting cast. The Good. Heroes for Hire is comprised of some of Marvel's best second-tier heroes who usually don't get this level of experience. Iron Fist works well as the team's leader, Black Knight has returned to the Marvel fold in a costume that fits his name and mythos, and Ant-Man acts as the team's secret weapon by staying out of sight with his shrinking powers. Hercules, when part of the team, is interesting as a drunken braggart. And then there's Power Man rejoining the team under mysterious circumstances. Is he truly a spy for the Master, or just faking it? The series' narration has a very light-hearted style, giving the book a fun, fan-friendly feel. For example, entertaining pop quizzes are scattered throughout issue number 5, which not only tie into the story, but also contain obscure Marvel trivia, the next issue actually answered each question. In particular, the first page intros of each issue always bring you up to speed and remind you to enjoy the book, The Bad. 
Too many things happen too easily in this book just to move the story along. In issue number one, the UFOs defeat the Hulk, a normally monumental task, in two pages, just to further along that issue's plot. In issue number three, Nitro is built up as a big threat, only to be taken down by common shrapnel. In issue number four, Iron Fist leads the team into a trap because he, coincidentally, was under mind control since earlier that morning. In addition to Nitro, the UFOs and an assortment of villains in number four pop up and get defeated just as quickly. You never get the feeling any of them are doing any more than providing a few fight scenes to the book. Lastly, the recent Deviant storyline inundates you with quick looks at obscure Eternal characters and a lot of old Deviant history that's not explained. What is an anti-mind, anyway? Perhaps it was supposed to be monumental, but since you don't get a detailed explanation of the backstory, it mostly leaves you bored. The Buzz. Heroes for Hire has a good following and is climbing the charts. We'll see how it fares now that Marvel's main heroes have returned. The Skinny, an attractive list of underused Marvel heroes, are waiting for a sense of true drama and tension to add to this book. The Verdict, a three, which is so-so. Now, I feel like, you know, this is a pretty fair assessment of what's going on there. But of this group of books that were filling the void during Heroes Reborn, I read it and I felt like it was a strong book, at least in premise. And it wasn't as confusing as Alpha Flight to me, where it felt like that narrator was really getting in the way. And there's just a lot of, mm, I don't know, ideas that were maybe too far outside the box. Whereas this one fits in pretty well what you would expect from superhero adventure from kind of the B-teamers. So, I don't know, So-So is fine, but I might have given it a four at least because I, I thought it did a good job with that. But next up here is Green Arrow. Green Arrow Jr. misses his mark. So the creative team here was uh, Chuck Dixon, Doug Brethwaite. Now, they call him Dougie Braithwaite, which I don't think is how he goes <laughs> around representing himself, but there you go. So what you need to know, Connor Hawk, the son of the original Green Arrow, has taken up the archer's mantle, but unlike his aggressive father, Connor is a more passive hero. The good. Connor isn't your typical superhero. He's young, innocent, and was raised in a monastery, which makes him the most forgiving and patient superhero around. His mom's actually married to a known arms dealer named Milo, yet she's stayed with him, duped into believing he's reformed. Oh yeah, Connor's also a vegetarian. Original concepts like this make Connor stand out in the sea of mundane superheroes. The premises of sub-stories are interesting. In issue number 122, a man mysteriously drowns in the middle of a desert, yet it hasn't rained in over six months. Then, in issue number one. 27, Milo gets so fed up with Connor ruining his arms deals that he actually hires an assassin to kill him. The covers to Green Arrow kick butt. In a world of blurry superhero comic racks, its covers are quite eye-catching in design and composition. The bad. While Connor is a peace-loving guy, he still needs to be more proactive. He doesn't fight much. Sure, it goes with his passive nature, but it doesn't do much for an action-starved audience. In issues 122 and 123, he never dominates the action. Trying to defeat a con man, lightning strikes the guy to take him down. In issue 125 and 126, he takes down a psychopath in a blah page and a half punch-out session. Let's CGA do that what he does best with his bow and not something Batman or Robin could do. For a superhero comic, there are no supervillains. In fact, the only supervillain Connor actually fights is the Silver Monkey, a B-grade ninja assassin who Milo hires to kill Connor. Instead, Connor encounters a low-rent con man, bland arms dealer, rioting citizens, and one criminal psychopath. We'd like to see some true supervillains in this series to really test this kid's mettle. Green Arrow could stand a better supporting cast. Right now, all he has is a cliched sensei who travels around with him, adding occasional comic relief. Hopefully, now that Connor's settling down as the owner of a San Francisco apartment building with number 127, a strong supporting cast will naturally follow. Also, we never get a sense of what this series is all about. What is Connor? 
Connor's motivation. Why is he roaming the countryside? Clearly more recapping is needed. As an example, during the three-part Green Arrow-Green Lantern crossover that ran through 125 to 126, readers were never filled in on exactly what happened in Green Lantern number 92's part two of the crossover. So if you did buy GL, tough luck. The buzz. Connor's recent induction into the mega-popular JLA should certainly give his book a higher profile. The skinny. A likable character? Green Arrow is unfortunately not given enough excitement and adventure to keep us interested. The verdict? A three. Also so-so. Now, when I hear about Connor Hawk and his origin and all that, I've never really read his stories. I think I read one, you know, Kyle Rayner, Connor Hawk crossover, but it was in Adventures of the DC Universe, so a slightly different continuity. But what I feel like is he sounds like, you know, Archer and Armstrong from Valiant. Archer was like this character who was also raised at a monastery. And yeah, so it, it seems like a very similar setup. They just took that character and made him Green Arrow's son. So anyway, I am slowly but surely collecting all the Kevin Smith Green Arrow issues from back issue vids. So I'm looking forward to that in a couple years of the show. But uh, hey, let's move on to Major Bummer. This one says, this book gives major laughs. So if you don't know, this is John Arcudi and Doug Mankey. Doug Mank. Both of their names, hard to pronounce. But what you need to know. Slacker Lewis Martin is mistakenly given superpowers by two bumbling alien college students as one of their science projects. But Lou doesn't care about his powers and tries to ignore the aliens and the weird bunch of super geeks trying to be his teammates. The good. This book is funny. The characters themselves are a riot. All the heroes in this book, except for Lewis himself, are so gung-ho about being superheroes with such randomly odd power names and costumes. You gotta love Gecko, who can only stick to walls, that they come across as big geeky losers. But Lou, on the other hand, is an over-the-top uncaring about... But Lou, on the other hand, is over-the-top uncaring about being a part of the whole superhero biz. He refuses to wear a costume or take a code name. He just wants to scab cable and get money for video games. He got ready-made jabs and jokes every time Lou and the super geeks meet up. Even the aliens try to come across as imposing always come back to the fact that they're just these weird college kids who have totally botched their experiment. The characters aren't the only source of humor, though. Check out this super-powered cat that becomes giant size whenever it gets scared. Watch for the Nazi dinosaur. Tyrannosaurus Reich. There are so many bizarre situations in this book that you're always off guard. The first time you see the aliens, they're eating the last of Lewis's macaroni and cheese. The team of bad guys in this book is amusingly revolting. Just try to make sense of what the Englishman with the giant brain is saying. What pulls this all together is the book's quality of writing and art. The characters consistently have their own personalities and spew offbeat dialogue. The artwork is very clean, conveying dead spew? Dead spew? No. Conveying dead on facial expressions and body language. Combine them both and you got a great read. The bad. The one thing that's missing from this book is a straight man. Lewis is such a slacker that you don't identify with him. All the best comedies have the one guy who's Jerry and Seinfeld that plays off of Kramer's nonsense. Ross is the normal one in Friends, and even Abbott had to deal with Costello's slapstick. As it stands, you're left amused, but detached. The buzz. Arcudi is taking over the writing reins of Gen 13 in March, a high-profile gig that'll hopefully spill fans over to Major Bummer. The skinny? Major Bummer is the funniest comic book on sale today. Its bizarre situations are backed up with hilarious characters, great art, and solid storytelling. The verdict? A five, which is excellent. Oh, and I have to agree, I've talked about it recently on the show, that I got a chance to start reading Major Bummer, and then I just kept reading. Like, I couldn't stop. It was so engaging, you just didn't know what was going to happen next. 
Next, to give just a short elevator pitch, I feel like it's the greatest American hero meets the tick. That really is like it's this guy given these powers by aliens, and then you have all these wannabe superheroes around him. The art in this book is really, really fantastic. I mean, it, it, if you've read the Mask books in the past, it's very detailed just like that, and just like, you know, kind of grotesque in a way. But at the same time, uh, one of the funny things in the book is that, you know, so Lewis starts out as just kind of this skinny slacker loser guy right and then he gets all buff and hunky looking but he's got a super hot sister that he lives with and so she's always popping up in the book and he's kind of giving her a hard time and you keep thinking should they be together you're like oh no it's his sister that's why uh but also the running joke and i'm sure it pays off eventually is that Lewis is not the one who is supposed to get the powers. It was supposed to be this other guy who's this like upstanding citizen. You know, he's involved in local politics. He's trying to make a difference. And he was like the guy with the morals that should have gotten the powers, but their names got transposed by the aliens. And so Lewis got it instead. And that guy keeps showing up in all these stories, not knowing he was supposed to have powers. And you just see, oh, really? If only he had done this, he could really be saving the day. He would be the Superman of this universe. So I can't agree more with Wizard on this, that Major Bummer is fantastic and just so well handled. I'm looking forward to discussing on our next episode, the Gen 13 by John Arcudi and his writing there. So I look forward to that on episode 79. All right, as we close out here, time to get into a Helix, which eventually becomes a Vertigo title, which I've never read, but only heard great things about, Transmetropolitan. It's a mad, 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 mad world! So, if you don't know, this is by Warren Ellis with art by Derek Robertson. What you need to know. In an overpopulated, cynical future, former superstar journalist Spider Jerusalem comes out of seclusion and re-enters the society he despises in order to fulfill a pricey book contract. The good. The book has refreshingly biting social and political tones that emanate through the series, and that's mainly thanks to the characterization of Spider himself. He's an obnoxious, arrogant, violent, crotchety punk, and we find ourselves loving him for it. In issue number four, Spider happily gives the U.S. president an emergency case of diarrhea. Bottom line, Spider hates the world and loves hating it. A lot of the high-tech sci-fi concepts are really neat. There's an obnoxious two-headed cat, an alien sex change, where instead of changing sex, humans could change their species to that of an alien, a bowel-loosening gun, a computer that's addicted to drugs, and more. This book is funny! There's tons of tongue-in-cheek humor. In issue number five, Spider calls up live TV talk shows exposing political figures as frauds, adding that sexual pictures of them can be found on the internet. In the same issue, Spider orders Air Jesus sneakers, which allow its wearer to walk on water. The stories don't whip out either. When Spider exposes the cops for beating up on a community of innocent human-alien high transients, the cops beat the crap out of Spider at the story's end. The highly detailed art and coloring are quite fluid and really set a perfectly cynical tone for the futuristic series. The bad. Sometimes the book goes a little over the top. In issue number one, he blew up a bar he frequented with a giant eat-me missile. So was Spider's giant rant on society in the same issue while he walked on top of cars. While number one's large setup was important for the understanding of the series, it was a bit too much to absorb. Readers who only picked 
picked up number one could easily have been turned off to the entire series for good. The Buzz. The first few issues sold well enough to warrant a trade paperback in January, reprinting issues number one through three. But otherwise, there's zero buzz. No one's talking about this series, mainly because there's little interest in the Helix line. The Skinny. Except for occasionally going a wee bit over the top, Transmetropolitan features a fabulously wonderful and insane world that we sure as heck wouldn't want to live in, but definitely love to visit every month. The Verdict of Five. Another excellent. I would be fascinated to know if it's literally just because it gets switched over to Vertigo on the cover and that is what boosts sales because people are like, I don't know what Helix is. I know what Vertigo is and it means quality. Or was it Wizard? Give it a little bit of a push here. What made Transmetropolitan a hit? Just word of mouth? There's so many factors, but I'd be curious to know from you out there, if you were a reader who loved it, where did you hear about it first? What got you to pick up an issue and check it out because i feel like i gotta take a look at it now too but that does it for the skinny this issue now let's check out our mort of the month this month's mort is blowhard <laughs> This cross between a lard butt appliance repair band and grandma bed from Bone had the incredible power to create strong winds. Whether from his mouth or his ass, we don't know, but he did blow through a pipe to focus his power like he was some bargain basement Popeye, the friggin' sailor man. Oh yeah, he also had a wardrobe that looked like the official Asgardian troll surplus, and despite his tough guy mutant blowing power, died at the hands of common street thugs. The only thing this mort's got going for him an appropriate name, Blowhard? Oh yes, he does. <laughs> the Mardo meter is not quite maxed out on this one, but yeah, he literally just looks like he's from medieval times, but he's like balding on top and then he's got this big shock of hair that like flows around him. Kind of like the look of the dude from Babylon 5 who is like that dignitary. I don't know. I, I just don't understand. Like, was he a Morlock? Like, what was his deal? They're saying he's a mutant here. Was he actually a villain? Once again, if Wizard could hear me back in 1998, you guys you gotta tell us what books these characters appeared in. We get some indication it was Marvel because he's a mutant, but what else? Well, let's close this thing out here. Thanks so much for checking out this edition of Wizards Half. Of course, there's no stopping this Wizards train. No, it just keeps on a rolling. So what is coming up next for you? Well, for episode 79, it's just me and Michael. That's right. Get back to your original host. Just get ready to chat. But I will tell you just a little heads up ahead of time for episode number 80, we are having William Bibiani. He is from the critically acclaimed network of podcasts. He is a film critic. Uh, he's a very fun guy, so I'm looking forward to that. But also, uh, what do we have going on? Well, keep an eye on our YouTube channel. If you are not subscribed yet, we're trying to put together the final edit of our second annual superhero fantasy draft event. Yes, the extreme edition, where we are drafting image characters, defiant characters, Although I don't think anybody chose a defiant character. Uh, <laughs> Valiant, everybody else. So yeah, it was a very, very fun event. We want you to watch that and just take it all in. But more than anything, we want you to participate. 
So consider joining in next year. But also, uh, what do we have coming up? Well, we have a Batman special issue that Wizard published, and we need some Bat experts to join us. So if you feel like you were somebody who was really reading Batman comics 1997 into early 2000, you know, this era where there were some changes on the horizon, let us know because we'd love to have you in for that discussion. Feel free to reach out to us. You can DM us on social media or write to us, wizardscomics at gmail.com gmail.com. We are continuing to talk to the folks over at Zenoscope Comics, so if that is a brand you're not familiar with yet, or a publisher that you do already enjoy, much like Michael, who is a super fan, I'm learning along the way. We are continuing to go behind the scenes with them in association with popgeeks.com. Little plug for them. I write movie reviews and do like celebrity interviews for that site. So if you ever want to see what I'm doing when I'm not up to my Wizards gig, you can check that out. But also we want you to join us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Wizards Comics. We are getting new subscribers every week. We love having you over there and bringing you our exclusive content. You know, one of the things that we don't really promote that much is we do a Patreon chat every month where Michael and I just get together and it's total off the cuff. Michael lives for it, you know? I keep him on a pretty tight leash when we record the main episodes because we just gotta hit all the beats in the issue, you know, all the stuff that they wrote. But he is uh, loving it when we just get together and just talk about everything. I mean, we got into what social media platform we should be jumping to next. Twitter and Instagram feel like they're just not gonna cut it anymore and things like that. So anyway, uh, you also, of course, get your full scan of the issue. You get the early uncut release versions of the episodes as well as new episodes now of our 90s super cinema series which our patrons get to vote on what movie we're going to cover and so if that appeals to you if you want to contribute to the show and just help us out we'd really appreciate it go on over there join the club of course so many of you are already doing a great job sharing the show adding us in people's comments on social media so they know we exist and that's been a great way to spread the word as well so thanks for all that you do thanks for your enthusiasm geeks. And hey, until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.